the podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true it's been tried in the fire still Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of the Pod King Podcast, Donnie King. This is Monday, March the 14th, episode number 55. He suffered without the gate. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 9 through 15. On this podcast, we studied the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we had a special guest, Brother Wade Auld. We visited with Brother Wade concerning his life and testimony. He gave us an exhortation that we also see as very needful. We also find it interesting when we get a glimpse into the life of believers. We see what all the Lord has done for them. At the end, we answered a couple of questions that have been sent in recently. In today's episode, we are told to not be carried about with strange doctrines. We study about the altar, the sacrifices, and how Jesus sanctifies us with his own blood. He suffered without the gate, so we should not shirk from bearing his reproach as we seek a city to come. We are to offer our sacrifice to God continually, the fruit of our lips, with praise to his name. Now for the teaching of God's word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of the Pod King podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Well, it's a wonderful day to be digging into God's Word, and we thank you for tuning in with us and listening. We believe that we have some very interesting verses to cover today, and we look forward to getting into it. Are you ready to dive in? Yes, I'm ready. All right, let's get started with verse 9 of Hebrews 13. Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. In this verse, we receive a warning from the writer, and the first part of this verse tells us not to be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. And I believe this links it very closely with Ephesians 4 and 14, which says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. The words carried about is a Greek phrase, parapharo. Parapharo means to be taken away or removed. In other words, he's really trying to tell us, don't be removed by false doctrines. Don't allow various beliefs to take you away. Now, what does that mean to be removed or taken away from? Of course, he's speaking of the truth. Don't be removed from the truth. Don't be taken away from Christ. Don't be led astray from the faith of which we've been studying. This is what divers or various doctrines will do. And I believe that that definition really adds some force to this scripture as well. These strange, foreign, and false doctrines are of the devil because they lead you away from Jesus Christ, who we are to be following. We all know that the word that we see as doctrines literally means teachings or instructions, and we're to be sound enough in our faith that we will not be removed by these strange doctrines. We're to be sound enough in the scriptures that we're not to be taken away by foreign teaching. The writer explains that it's a good thing that our hearts be established with grace, but then he throws us kind of for a loop when he contrasts grace with meats. 
Okay, before you begin thinking, well, this must be a comparison between spiritual things and carnal things, allow me to explain what the writer is talking about here. Our hearts are to be established or confirmed as the Greek word bibaio should be defined, confirmed with grace or charis. Okay, meat is not what we're to be trying to confirm our hearts with. I believe that we can find out more about this description of what he's meaning by meats by looking at something Paul said in Colossians 2 and 16, and then by going to Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. Colossians 2 and 16 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in the respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. This ought to set our minds to thinking of the correct form of meat, what is meant by that, because these meats were offered as meat offerings unto the Lord in the sacrificial system. Now let's go to Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. The writer uses this meats here as a contrast between the Old Testament sacrificial system and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. Christ is the only way to confirm our hearts with grace. You can't do it with an outdated religious system. The priesthood and the killing of animals resulted in meats that cannot establish our hearts, but the Lord Jesus can through his grace that he gives unto us. The writer goes on to say that those who used the system of meats were never even profited by it. It really didn't do much for those who took part in that system. This is the same conclusion we should arrive at when considering all religious systems, teachings, and doctrines. When you compare them to Christ, he is much better and much greater. Hebrews 13 and 10 says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Now, I want you to think for just a moment that this reference is to an altar, but it's not the altar that most of our people would think in the modern day. This is more in line with the altar that 1 Corinthians 9 and 13 and 10 and 18 is speaking of. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Now what he's doing is he's speaking of the altar of sacrifice in the temple, not the altars that we have within our churches where we go and kneel down and pray. These were altars where you brought the sacrifice, the animal was killed, its blood sprinkled on the altar, and sometimes, depending upon the sacrifice, his body would be torn in pieces and laid on the altar. Those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat of the things sacrificed on the altar for it was considered the Lord's sacrifice. That was unto the Lord. Now the sacrificial system is in vain because Jesus is the last of all sacrifices. This isn't the meat that we need, for we've been given grace as we saw in the previous verse. We're not needing the meat of a dead animal to stand in our place. We've been given the grace of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 says, For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Now, I want to look at about four verses here in the Old Testament where this scripture is taken from. It's Exodus 29 and 14, and then three places in Leviticus, chapter 6, verse 30, chapter 9, verse 11, and chapter 16, verse 27. I'll read them in that exact order. 
But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. And no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile with all in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burnt in the fire. And the flesh and the hide he burnt with fire without the camp. And the bullock for the sin offering and for the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall one carry forth without the camp. And they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. The bodies of these beasts, or the sacrificial animals to be exact, they were torn apart, their blood being brought into the sanctuary by the high priest, and the remainder was burnt without the camp. The blood was brought in for sin, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. This was to be seen as an act of giving life for death. The man who sinned received life, and the animal who was innocent died. The death was the man's, but it was imputed upon the beast. Sin always brings death. God says he has no pleasure from the burnt offerings and the sacrifices for sin, according to Hebrews 10 and 6. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Because it represents death, these procedures could not be conducted within the sanctuary. Only life could happen in the sanctuary. It couldn't even happen near the temple. It had to be taken so far from the temple, they had to go outside the gate of the city. Also, here, the word for sanctuary is speaking of the holy place. There's two reasons I know this to be true. For one, the blood was brought into the holy place in the Old Testament by the high priest. We know that because we read that verse. Number two, the Greek word used here is hagios, which means holy. And since the phrase is incomplete, it says they would bring it into the holy well, the word place must be added for clarity. So what the writer is saying is they were brought into the holy place. The bodies of these beasts had to be taken outside the camp so as not to pollute nor profane God's holy place. The Greek word that's interpreted here as camp is very interesting because it's parimbole. All right, parimbole is usually defined as anything from barracks to headquarters all the way to castle, as it's read in Acts 21, 34, and 23 and 10. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude, and when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle, or the parimbole. Then it says, And when there arose a great dissension, the chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. This is again, Parimbole. That same word is translated as armies earlier in the book of Hebrews in 11 and 34. They quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, and turned to flight the armies, or parimbole, of the aliens. Stephen was such a picture of Christ that when he was dying, he forgave his abusers. But it was not before he was also hauled outside the city, just like Christ was, to be executed. Acts 7 and 58 tells us about that. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. The writer is setting up yet another comparison that we're going to see finished in the next verse that we read, which is Hebrews 13 and 12. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. The sacrificial animals are now being contrasted with Christ. We've seen Christ contrasted to 
the angels. We've seen him contrasted with Moses. We've seen him contrasted with Aaron. We've seen him contrasted with the priesthood. We've seen him contrasted with the animals now of the priesthood. The sacrifices versus sacrifice, the blood versus blood, their bodies are being contrasted with his body right now. Their blood that was shed is contrasted with the blood that Jesus shed. The fact of their suffering is being played one against another. Even the place where they died is being pitted against each other. The animals were killed and their blood was shed so man could be cleansed and made holy. Jesus did what he did in order to sanctify the people, which is the Greek word hagiazo, which means to make holy. The writer mentioned the act of sanctification along with this long before in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of this one scripture, some people have concocted a doctrine that purports that the blood is applied at sanctification. They use Hebrews 10 and 10 and Hebrews 13 and 12. To me, this makes salvation seem very small. What good is salvation if the blood is not applied at salvation? What does salvation accomplish for us then? What does it do? This verse is not stating that the blood is not applied until sanctification, but it is telling us that Jesus cleansed us in a higher sense than those animals could ever do for anyone. If the blood of animals could give life instead of death, how much more could the blood of Jesus Christ, the one who is life, do for lost mankind? Verse 13 of this chapter says, Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. It is because of what Jesus did for us that we should go unto him outside the camp and bear his reproach. Well, what does it mean for us to be outside the camp? What does it mean for us to bear his reproach? Let me state this. If Jesus had died inside the gates of Jerusalem, salvation would have only been available to the Jews. By him dying outside the gate, this is what opened up the door for all Gentiles, all peoples, and all nations to be able to have the opportunity of being saved. By his death being outside of Jerusalem, this shows the rejection of the Jews and the opening of the door for all the other nations and peoples. Now, before you get high-minded, I want you to stop. Think for a moment. Just because the door was open for the Gentiles and Jerusalem and the Jews seemed to be rejected, don't forget what Paul said in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Don't be boastful. Don't be high-minded. Remember the goodness and the severity of God, because if he would turn away from the natural branches, what would he do with those that have just been grafted in? So he talked about he would be coming back to the Jew. He would be giving them an opportunity to be saved as well. So this is not replacement theology. This is just how he died to open up the door that all people would be saved. We are to bear, or as the Greek word Pharaoh means, we would carry his reproach by going unto him. We're to bear that reproach. We're to carry that stigma. The word for reproach is an odd one. It's onizimus, not onesimus as the name that Paul writes about in one of his epistles, but onizimus, which means a type of reproach. It means to bear an insult, to suffer disgrace. Jesus suffered disgrace to bring us his grace. We're to bear the insult and the disgrace of Christ. So what does that mean? The reproach that he bore was the shame and the guilt of sin, but it was modeled by the cross. Jesus bore our shame. He bore our guilt. Where did he bear it? He bore it upon the cross. 
This is kind of a poetic way of saying, let's go to Jesus and bear his cross with our lives. We will never be just like Christ here on this earth, but we're to strive to be. The moment that we are the closest to being Christ-like is when we're being crucified with him. That's when we share the most of the qualities of Christ. Hebrews 13 and 14 says, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. The writer uses this illustration to remind us another reason that Christ suffered outside the gates of Jerusalem is because down here we have no permanent residence. Jerusalem is not what we're serving God to get to. We're serving him to get to new Jerusalem. Now, continuing city, that word continuing in the Greek is meno. Now, meno means a place to stay, a place to reside, or a place to abide forever. We won't get this until we reach that great rest that we read about all the way back in Hebrews chapter 4. There is therefore a rest for the people of God. I want to use a few other verses that back up this thought of having a city to come. Micah 2 and 10 says, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you even with the sore destruction. What he's saying by the prophet Micah is that this is not our rest down here. We have a better place. Philippians 3 and 20 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our conversation is in a higher place. Hebrews 11 and 10 says, But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now, if God is preparing for us a city, and we don't have such a city now, we're seeking one to come, what is that telling us? Our hope is not to be confined to this world. Let me read you two more verses, Hebrews 11 and 16. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 12 and 22 says, But ye are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God. This is the city we're looking for, by the way. And I'll go on reading here, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels. So we realize that our hope is in the heavens. Our hope is steadfast because it's in Jesus Christ, and he's the only one who can get us to heaven. Therefore, it's through Christ we get the city we're looking for, and we find the hope that we have in our hearts fulfilled in Christ. The last verse that we're going to look at today is Hebrews 13 and 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. This is compounding several things for us right here in this verse. By him is a certain reference to Jesus. We know that the by him that this is talking about is not speaking of Moses. It's not speaking of the sacrificial system. It must be speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the one that was stated we're to go outside the gate unto and bear his reproach. That's the same by him. Some people try to twist this and say, we don't know for sure who the writer was talking about. Yes, we do. Just by the language that it's used here, just by the phrases and the verb phrases and the way the sentence is constructed, you understand in our English language and most definitely in the Greek in which it was written that it's talking about Jesus Christ here. So it's by him, by Jesus, we are to offer a sacrifice to God. Well, he said, let's go to him and bear his reproach. So that means take up the cross. We're to offer a sacrifice to God, just like Jesus did. Jesus offered that sacrifice to God on the cross. Therefore, we're to offer our sacrifice unto God by getting on the cross as well, dying out daily. This is how we bear the reproach, just like Jesus did. 
This is to be a sacrifice of praise unto God, and we're to offer it continually, the writer says. Continually means every day. So this ties in with what Paul taught us, the necessity of us needing to die daily. This is played against the fact that down here we have no continuing city. So we're to die every day in search of that city. We're to carry our cross every day and will not lay the cross down until we reach that city. We're still yet to offer praise to God continually. It's reminiscent of Ephesians 5 and 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is also done in fulfillment of what 1 Peter 2 and 5 teaches. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. The Greek word in this verse for continually is much different than the word continuing that we looked at in the previous verse. Continually is pantos. Pantos means every or all. This really helps our understanding of this portion much better. We're to give this sacrifice of praise to God every, every what? Well, we're to do it every day. All, what does it mean to give to God all? We're to do it at all times. We're to praise God every day and to do it at all times. The sacrifice of praise that we're to offer to God is the fruit of our lips. Now, I'm not sure where the writer got this all together, but there's two good possibilities. One is Hosea 14 and 2. Take with you words and turn to the Lord, say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips. Now, we know that the writer is talking about calves. He's talking about a sacrificial animal. So he's saying, let's render unto God. Let's offer unto God the calves of our lips, that sacrifice of our lips. Psalms 119 and 108. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. David says, I'm going to give you an offering, and it's free will. It's coming straight from my heart, but it's coming through my mouth, coming out of my lips, and I'm going to give it unto you. This is the fruit of my lips. It's a free will offering. We do this by giving thanks unto his name. Now, that little phrase right there, giving thanks, is very interesting when you examine it in the Greek. In the Greek, it's homologio. Homologio means to confess something. And in Hebrews 11 and 13, we see it used that way. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. When they confessed that, they homologioed. They confessed it. This is what was being said back here in Hebrews 13 and 15. We're to give thanks. We're to confess unto God. First John 2 and 23 uses this exact same word, and here it's translated as to acknowledge. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. If you acknowledge him, if you confess him, you're giving thanks unto him. So to truly acknowledge God is to give thanks unto him. To truly confess him as your Savior, you're giving thanks unto his name. The fruit of our lips is a sacrifice of praise to God when we confess the name of Jesus. When we acknowledge the name of Jesus, we are in fact offering a sacrifice of praise unto God. This is the whole purpose and the whole plan of God revealed to us right here. It pleases the Father when we glorify the Son. But if we're going to glorify him, we must first acknowledge him, confess his name, and it's offered as praise unto him, the fruit of our lips.
Brother Donnie, once again, great teaching. And blessed be the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have a question here today. You ready? Yes, let's do it. All right. In Matthew 6, what is meant by the phrase, sounding the trumpet? Did they literally blow a trumpet when they gave alms or an offering? I'm amazed at how literal some people do look at scriptures, and, and I appreciate that. I'm thankful that people are looking at them and not just glossing over them. Okay, let me read you Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and get the setting in our minds where everybody can think of this. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Verse 2 says, when you do your alms, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. So let's keep this in our mind, but I want to look at a couple of the words within the verse to get some things down in our minds where we understand what's being talked about a little better. Alms are best translated as righteous deeds. When you offer your alms, when you do good deeds, okay, alms are described as righteousness. Let me give you a couple of examples, one found in the Old Testament and one in the New. Deuteronomy 24 and 13 says, In any case, thou shalt deliver him the pledge again when the sun goeth down, that he may sleep in his own raiment and bless thee, and it shall be righteousness unto thee before the Lord thy God. What's it talking about? When you do this good deed, it's righteousness unto God. Paul confirms this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. These good deeds that Paul's talking about are alms, but they're also known as righteousness. When you do good, it's right. And when you do right, you're doing righteousness. Most likely, this section here in Matthew 6 is a continuation of what he was speaking about in Matthew 5 and 20, and Jesus is only building upon that same thought. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're doing good and your good deeds are more so than what the Pharisees do, your goodness isn't going to help you a bit. It's going to take righteousness to get us to heaven, but the righteousness of our own selves is not sufficient. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 6 and 2, Jesus said the people did what they were doing. They received the glory of men. Now, that tells us several things just right there. Number one, they received glory or praise from men when they did that which was good. Number two, they didn't receive glory or praise from God over this because they got their glory from men. Number three, it shows us the condition of their hearts. They were wanting to be highly thought of by men more than they were wanting to be acknowledged by the Lord. When other men saw their generosity in giving, they would praise them for their great giving. I'm afraid we have some of that still yet alive and well in our day. Have you ever seen anything like that? Oftentimes, yes, I have. Jesus didn't say that these people would not be rewarded for this. He just simply said they already got their reward. Their reward was fulfilled by the praise of men. By doing things this way, it exposed their sinful motives. It laid bare their wicked hearts. 
When we do things for the right reasons or righteous reasons, it brings glory to God because we just do it because it's right. But when we do these things for the wrong reasons, it's to bring glory to man. That glory comes back to me if I don't give the glory to God. This, in effect, is robbing God of his glory in the matter completely. I might have done a good deed, but when I get all the glory for it, it's the same as if I didn't even do the good deed. As a matter of fact, it's probably worse. That's right. All of this had become a performance show. They wanted to see who could outdo the others. If I could give more in the offering than you give, I'm a better man than you. But if you give more than me, then I'm better than you. So you see how it worked. Yeah. They wanted to see who could outdo the other. And Jesus called them hypocrites for doing this. Now, keep that in mind. Jesus Christ, not Paul, not John the Baptist, not some other disciple or apostle, but Jesus himself called them hypocrites for doing these things. The word hypocrite here simply means to be an actor or performer. These hypocrites were putting on a performance show weekly. They were acting righteous by the very deeds that they were doing. What deeds? They're righteous deeds. They're good deeds. God isn't looking for more actors to star in a show. He's looking for people who will bring him glory. God isn't looking for people who will come in and steal his glory from him. He's looking for people that's going to bring glory to his name and exalt him. The whole problem is that these people were doing what they were doing to be seen of men. Let me read you Matthew 23 and 5. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Everything they do, every little thing they do, is only to get glory from men. One of the ways they could receive the glory of men is by what giving and the offerings did for them. I want you to listen to this. This is how warped the rabbis and the priesthood had gotten by the time of Christ. Those who gave the most were allowed to sit closest to the rabbi that week in the synagogue. Even if you didn't see what the guy gave, when you saw him sitting near the rabbi, it lets you know who gave the most in the alms that week. That's right. By that person sitting the closest to the rabbi, they were also believed to be more spiritual. So the man who gave the most was counted as the most spiritual. This is how warped the religious system had gotten. This also might have been the main point Jesus was driving home about the little woman who cast in two mites. He told those standing by that she had cast in more than all of them. This blew them away for they knew that she didn't give near as much as the rest of them. But Jesus's point was this little lady is closer to me than anybody else in here. She gave all she had. She most certainly did. Now, the phrase in Matthew 6 and 1 through 4 about the sounding of the trumpet, of which our question was asked, was a term for the collection jars that they received offerings in at the temple. These jars were set outside for almsgiving. If you wanted to give something to feed the poor or help the needy, you would throw your money in this little jar. These jars were shaped similar to a trumpet at the top. They were rounded out real big, and they had a big mouth, and then there was a little hole that it would narrow down to that the money would drop in. When coins were thrown into that jar, they made a distinct sound, of which the Jews would refer to as sound in the trumpet. When you threw it in that trumpet-shaped vessel, it sounded the trumpet. In other words, it's just another way for them to brag about how much they were given. The more you threw in, the more you was bragging. They were known to bring smaller change, so it would appear that they gave him even more. Let's put it down into our terms today. Why would you give four quarters and make four clanks, blank, 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 when 20 nickels would still be a dollar, but it'd make a lot more noise? That's right. Can I ask you today, 
Why do you do what you do? Why do you give as much as you give or as little as you give? Are you doing what you're doing out of a pure motive or are you doing it to be seen of men? You don't have to sound the trumpet for yourself. You don't have to pat yourself on the back and you don't have to toot your own horn. You don't have to sound the trumpet in that manner, but we do need to sound the trumpet and tell the world about Jesus. And that's what we're lacking in our hour. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed these lessons. The book of Hebrews has been a wonderful study. Friends, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's word. But until next time, may God bless you all. We thank you for tuning in with us today, and we're looking forward to Friday with special guest Chris Lee with us again. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid me go. Dressing and talking like he wants me to He's a keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus And cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home in glory Where no sorrow will end